Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, listeners and Kristen. Happy Wednesday. Happy Mercury Day. So, (laughs) as I take a deep sigh, um, as we record this, six planets are in retrograde. um, And how are you feeling, Kristen? You know, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, There's like a little bit of a full moon hangover Mm -hmm. um, combined with, like you said, six planets in retrograde. So it's truly an opportunity to practice some grace and patience with ourselves. So I'm currently working on that. How are you doing? Yeah, all of the above. And then I'm also Mm -hmm. just trying to like layer some like humor into it too (laughs) yes you have to Mm -hmm. it's like main survival tactic here but I told you before we started recording my computer just you know blinked off and uh has refused to turn back on so you know in the spirit of grace and humor I'm looking forward to my perhaps fresh start digitally and also thank you to my love for letting me use his laptop (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's like in case any of us need a reminder that astrology is real, um, retrograde planets are great for that. Yeah, absolutely. And so in these weeks before Samhain, uh, what listener question have you picked from our listeners today? Well, today's listener question feels seasonally appropriate. It's all about active dreaming. Specifically, is there a way to induce lucidity in dreams? And I love dream work, and I have so many thoughts and feelings about lucid dreaming, so I already love this question. But first, for anyone who may not know, lucid dreaming is when you are asleep, but you are aware that you are dreaming. From what I understand, about 50 to 75% of humans will experience a lucid dream at least once in their life, and then about a quarter of those people experience lucidity much more often. I am someone who has regularly experienced some sort of lucidity since childhood, but for people who have never had a lucid dream before and are curious, there are some techniques that can assist in bringing about lucidity. One of them involves doing reality checks throughout the day. Reality checks are essentially when you check to see if you're dreaming, and it may sound silly to ask yourself, am I dreaming, when you are fully aware that you are sitting at your desk and working, but the idea is that this reality check will become a habit in your waking life, and it'll carry on into your dreaming life. And our reality check can be as simple as asking ourselves, am I dreaming? Some people like to do this while looking at their hands because apparently hands look weird in our dreams, or they like to ask themselves when looking in a mirror, um, which I don't like to do when I'm dreaming, but I do think it can be an effective reality check. I also know some people who like to jump up and down a few times and ask themselves if they're dreaming because um, that's something, jumping up and down is something that's either much easier to do or much more difficult in our dreamscapes. So then once you're lucid, what happens? That's a good question. Um, (laughs) Essentially, whatever you want. You know, I just like to go explore. I often find myself in similar places, usually those with many doors, like a massive old house or a school, um, sometimes a mall, many times an airport for some reason. Mm. Um, It's sort of like, Have you ever watched the Netflix series Lock and Key? No, but I remember you mentioning this and it's been on my list. So maybe this fall. Okay. 
Yes, you should watch it. It's really great. I recommend it. But in this show, there is a magical key that you can put in the back of your head and it allows you to explore what's inside. So sometimes people see like a carnival or a mall or an antique store and they get to walk around and check everything out and, you know, sort of see like what forgotten things are left in there. And I feel like that's similar to lucid dreaming. Like you're exploring your mind in a way where there aren't as many limits or conscious thoughts directing us, which can be really liberating. I really love that visual of the of the key. It really helps me kind of like ground and picture that. Yeah. And, you know, reality checks are just like one way to bring about lucidity. There are many books that explore lucid dreaming and its intersection with out-of-body experiences and astral traveling and all these things in depth. So if any of these concepts interest you listeners, I would suggest reading Leaving the Body by Scott Rogo, Journey of Souls by Michael Newton, and Journeys Out of the Body and Far Journeys by Robert Monroe. Thanks for this, Kristen. I'm going to have to check some of those out. But now to introduce our special guest for today's episode, Jennifer Patterson. Jennifer and I first connected virtually via our work in Brooklyn years ago, and I even interviewed her for a digital and written publication back in 2019. But this is the first live conversation we've had, which is really exciting for me to connect, um, to read Jennifer's official bio here. Jennifer Patterson is a grief worker who uses plants, breath, and words to explore survivorhood, body, bodies, and healing. A queer and trans affirming and centering trauma experienced herbalist and breathwork facilitator, Jennifer offers sliding scale care as a practitioner through her private practice Corpus Ritual and is a member of the Breathe Network. She has facilitated workshops at healing centers, LGBTQ centers, a needle exchange, and harm reduction clinic, online with the Transformative Language Arts Network, sexual violence resource centers at colleges and universities, veterans hospitals, and the collective What Would an HIV Doula Do?, and a Hasidic and Orthodox Jewish Healing Center. She's also a teacher in training programs with the Breathe Network, Breath Liberation Society, and Breathwork for Recovery's Breathwork Clinician Program. She is the author of Love What Survives and The Power of Breathwork, Simple Practices to Promote Well-Being from Quarto, and is the editor of the anthology Queering Sexual Violence, Radical Voices from Within the Anti-Violence Movement. Jennifer speaks across the country and has had writing published in places like Vita, Women in Literary Arts, 580 Split, Ocho, A Journal of Queer Arts, Nat, Brute, The Establishment, Handjob, and The Feminist Wire. A graduate of Goddard College's MA program, Jennifer is finishing a book focused on translating embodied traumatic experience through somatic practice and critical and creative nonfiction. You can find more at corpusritual.com. Listeners, we hope you find this episode as potent as we do, full of intersections, crossroads, healing as political act, and working with the complex layers of trauma and grief. Witchcraft and magic thrives in the underworld. It is, after all, a space of and for those on the fringe. And Jennifer's work, much like Hecate's lantern, helps guide us through and toward that Plutonian space, where she encourages us to be with the poison and to sit with the humanity of others to create room for more healing. Jennifer joins us via Zoom from her house in so-called New Mexico. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lisenby. And today we have Jennifer Patterson with us. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. So happy yeah. you're here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. <laughs> so at the beginning of our interviews, we like to ask our guests about their big three in astrology. So would you mind sharing your sun, moon, and rising signs? Sure. Yeah, um, I have a Libra sun, 
a Gemini moon and a Leo rising. And then I also, I mean, related, but unrelated. It's like, I have a shit ton of Pluto stuff. And most of my chart is like on the bottom half. So just living in the underworld. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) We love Pluto here. (laughs) Kristen and I both have Pluto on our ascendant. Mm-hmm. I think I have Pluto on my son, but I would have to ask my astrologer girlfriend. I always <laughs> mess it up. <laughs> so would you mind sharing a bit about yourself and your work in your own words? Sure. Um, I mean, I guess like first and foremost, I'm a survivor of multiple forms of violence. I'm a queer person. Um, I navigate complex PTSD and disability and just... Uh, yeah, just being in the underworld, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and work-wise, I, it's been kind of a long trajectory, but I started um, realizing that I wanted to like be in relationship to the violence I had experienced in like a, a generative way. So I started doing some community organizing work probably back in 2008 or nine mm-hmm. around sexual violence. And then from there... Um, edited an anthology called Queering Sexual Violence. And along the way, realized like I had a shit ton of healing work I needed to do still for myself before I could really be in relationship to other people navigating theirs. So um, that's how I, I found breath work and I found herbalism and writing has always been a big part of my um, somatic practice, embodiment practice. So uh, I'm just I'm grateful to be able to like do those things with other people now and just be with people coming back into their aliveness and also like just um, being with the truth of their experiences and their stories and their bodies. Mm. Um, in in Francis F. Denny's Major Arcana book, you are quoted paired with a photo of you and Datura saying, quote, I've spent a lot of time exploring my shadows, the trauma and violence I've experienced through working with poison medicine, breath work, and also psychedelics. And that work has always been about diving into the underworld in the hopes of witnesses and offering care to what's there. My practice is about a love for both the shadows and the light, not prioritizing one or the other, allowing both to be sources of wisdom." Understanding the two poles, the two ends, two binaries, and there's a whole bridge of expanse in between. I'm trying to be in the place in between, have it be enough. And actually, I'm not trying to anymore. Just be where I am. Become less of a somebody and more of a nobody. I like to think the plants know what I'm talking about. I think this quote is so beautiful. Um, And could you speak a little bit about this? So your relationship to these ends and to the poison path. Yeah. And I was trying to remember when I started first reading or being with that idea of the poison path. And I mean, it's been close to a decade. I would say maybe 2013, 14-ish. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've experienced a lot of violence and abuse in my life from childhood through adulthood. And I think when I, even like through through my 20s, early 30s, um, and I really felt extremely far away from myself. Like, I don't think I, I think there was a part of me that had a sense of like who I was underneath all that. But um, it was very murky for a long time. And so I think, you know, I hit a certain point where relationally I was realizing like, I need to like deal with my shit because it's impacting all my relationships. It's impacting my relationship to myself, most importantly. Um, And I think like, you know, this was like probably 15 years ago where like, I don't think I knew, at least the people in my world weren't really talking about like sexual violence and trauma all that much. And I kind of felt like an alien. Like I felt like I, you know, like was navigating the stuff that none of my immediate friend group was. Um, And so I kind of had to just like go back into myself and like work with practices that were about like reconnecting to myself And yeah, I mean, working with plants um, of all forms, you know, both like poisonous plants and psychedelics and entheogens, which I I kind of also put in that world. 
and breath work. Um, like I was living in such extremity already. Like I was navigating substance use issues, um, again, like difficult relationships. And so I felt really drawn to poison medicine because I think like what's beautiful about poison medicine is it asks us to be in right relationship to plants, to land, to ourselves, you know, like it, we can get fucked up real quick in, in Mm -hmm. the world of poison medicine. And if I'm coming to it from this like grasping, needing kind of like, um, yeah, grasping place, like, I'm not going to be served well by that work. And so I think it really helped me come into like the, the like fine line between poison and medicine, you know? And I think like using that as a framework really helped me look at so much in my life, you know, like so many of the relationships that I had, like partnerships and stuff, um, you know, were really, really, really complex and really harmful. And like, I I tend to date people with pretty complex trauma histories as well. So it was just like, we were just bucking up against each other and using poison medicine as a, um, a framework to understand those relationships helped me a lot because it was like, the relationships were often both poison and medicine, you know, at different times. And sometimes it would veer into, poison. And then like, you know, I needed to determine like if I can stay in those things. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, culturally, I would just say like generalization culturally, you people in the U S I think we really struggle with like grief. We struggle with violence. We struggle with, um, recognizing our own harmful behaviors. We struggle with like, yeah, being in the shadows, you know, not having the answer, not being okay, you know, like we want to get up and out of them all the time. Um, and so I was trying to just stay in it, you know, like I, I've done a lot of work too around like writing from the wound and it's like, how, how can I just sit down in it and stay there, you know, not in a way that harms me, but like in a way that just like lets the the darkness or the shadows or the heaviness just be witnessed a bit and be seen as medicine, you know, because mm-hmm. I think like, again, like I'm in the underworld, you know, my chart, my astrological chart, it's like so much of my experience has been about being in the dark um, and then trying to bring that out of the dark a bit to both support me and support other people. Um And yeah, and I think I came across the idea of the poison path when I was in grad school. I went to this very cool, strange, independent, kind of radical healing and education space called Goddard College, which Mm. is, um, it's low residency. And so you kind of go and create your entire curriculum at this residency, and then you take it back with you and you're in charge of (laughs) learning and writing and sharing it and like... You know, you know, it's got its issues too. I mean, it's constantly, you know, like any radical space, it's complicated. And, um, and it was incredible, you know, like I really got to be in the poison path and, you know, like read a lot about it, be in deep relationship with plants. Um, one of my dear friends, B, Britta Love, um, we were both there at the same time. And so we, you know, just spent a lot of time being in those places and being with those plants. And yeah, I've, I found it to be a really big boon for me because I am someone who's kind of in extremes often. And it's like, no, what does it mean to try to stay in between a little bit more? Mm. Yeah. And to like what you're speaking about too, like it's against kind of the urgency of the culture as well, like just spending the time that it takes and the time with grief, like everybody just wants it to be over with, you mm-hmm. know, but it really holds against that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, I mean, grief is a <laughs> an endless, endless thing. You know, if we're really paying attention, there's endless things to be grieving all the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, your Datura Balm has been like a huge ally to me during a year with just so much personal grief in my life. Um, Mm. So if you could speak maybe a little bit about how plants can support grieving and processing and also maybe a bit about your apothecary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Datura Balm is one that I, you know, we'll talk more about it, but that's a plant that I really sat with for a really long time before I started 
sharing that medicine more broadly because I think it's, you know, it's a poison plant and it's complicated <laughs> to work with. And, um, you know, I think, I think part of what I love so much about being with plants is like, I get to be a nobody. I get to just like, you know, like I am the person who waters them and I am the person who feeds them and that's my job. And, you know, I think being with plants helps me trust life a bit more. You know, I think sometimes those of us who have experienced a lot of violence in our life, it's really hard to trust humans and relationships. And I've found it much easier to trust plants. Um, and it's also like something outside of ourselves that's an anchor. So for me, yeah, like a lot of my life, I feel like has been about navigating grief and every time I'm in like a fresh, a fresh grief chamber, I, I feel like it's the first time I feel like I know nothing, you know, and I think it's humbling to kind of come back to grief and our practices around it with um, humility, because it is, I mean, it's humbling to just be dealing with the life and the death and the rebirth of ourselves over and over and the people we love over and over. Um, and yeah, I mean, the deterrent in general, it's like, that's, that's like crossroads medicine, you know, it's, it's medicine of the shadows. It's medicine for both being with grief and being with, um, the hard shit. And then also like trying to come into a better understanding of like when to let some of that go, um, when to come out of the dark a little bit maybe. And, um, yeah, I mean, working with plants that are considered in quotes poisonous, um, there needs to be some caution with them. So working with them topically is a really nice way to build a relationship with the spirit of, of Deterra before, you know, trying to do something more intensive. Mm -hmm. Do you know that poem by Emily Dickinson, the I'm nobody, who are you? I do, but does she talk about Deterra in it? No, just talking about being <laughs> being the person who just waters the plants. And I think at the end, she mm -hmm. like talks about it's like to live one's life a live long day to an admiring bog. It's like the final lines of it. But uh -huh. it just reminds me so much of what you're talking about. I love that poem. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel I don't think I've ever felt more seen than I have with like a hummingbird moth or like mm. a plant or, you know, like a plant that blooms despite all of the everything that's happening in the world and the climate. It's like, wow, okay. It's a good reminder. I can't believe hummingbird moths are real. I like lose my mind when I see them. I'm like, get over here. Get, like speaking of grasping, I'm like, can you get over here, please? I need to be close to you. I love them. And they love Datura too. So we have a lot in common, you know? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I didn't know that they were real. And I think it was Robin. One flew by. I was like, what a strange hummingbird. And she was like, that's a moth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So thinking back to when you first started working with poisonous plants, um, how might you suggest someone new to this potent magic proceed? I know you talked about topicals a little bit, but I don't know if there's anything else. Yeah. I mean, I think that what I think is amazing about plants is they're, they're often in our awareness before we have the name for them, before we know what they're used for traditionally and currently. I mean, um, and I think Datura just kept popping up. I, I lived in Brooklyn for 16 years and the last, I don't even know, six years of it, I just felt like I saw Datura everywhere, everywhere. And, you know, in like the strangest places, like Datura doesn't fuck around. Datura will grow out of anything, you know, like not, doesn't care about the quality of the soil, like doesn't mind being in like a median in traffic, you know? And, um, and I think once I started seeing Datura more and having a name for it, it was just like all the time. And so many, so many massive, huge bushes near where I lived in Brooklyn. And, um, and yeah, I mean, to go back to the idea of it being like poison medicine and poison plants being, um, 
both poison and medicine. It's like there are traditional cultures that still exist that use these medicines um, culturally for like change times in their lives. Um, And so, you know, I feel like there's a lot of fear around these plants that people who maybe aren't in relationship with them want to put on them. You know, like these are bad plants. They will harm you. And the truth is, it's like, it's our relationship to them, I think, you know, like with anything. It's like, if we go towards anything, being afraid of it or being aggressive towards it, like it's not, it's not really going to go that well. Um, And so, you know, coming into relationship with them means building a relationship. And I think it, you know, I think that there's a, I mean, I know I feel like a draw to them that's like, ooh, you know, and I think a lot of people feel that, but it's really important to kind of like let them just be themselves. And so maybe like starting to work with them just through like sitting with them, growing them, um, drawing them, writing about them, breathing with them, medi- you know, there's so many ways to just be with the plants before we ever take Again, it's like right relationship. Like, do we just meet someone and take something? Like, nah, like we got to take a little time to be with them. So I feel like that's a really great way. And growing them is like, I mean, you get to see the full life cycle of plants and you get to be a part of of their growth. And I think that's a really beautiful way. Um, And, you know, like more practical or maybe you know, tactile ways is like after you have a relationship with them, like working with an essence, like a flower essence. And if people aren't familiar with flower essences, which I feel like they probably would be listening to your podcast, but, um, you know, it's working with the energetic of a plant. So it's a way to work with these kind of more, um, complicated plants in a way that's won't be harmful to us if we're newer to it. And there's a lot to be learned just from the energetics of the plants. So I think that's a really nice way. And it doesn't even mean you have to ingest it. You can put it in a bath. You can put it on your skin. Um, I have a Datura tincture that I actually made for the first time this year, which usually I just make essences and I make bombs and topicals. And so, you know, I... I put a little tiny bit in my armpits, honestly, (laughs) you know, because it's like it's bringing in that medicine, but not in a way that could be like overwhelming and just a couple Mm -hmm. drops. But I would not recommend working with a Datura tincture or any kinds of tinctures of these plants if you're like new to them. Um, But yeah, there's so many ways. And I feel like, you know, dominant culture is like, oh, let's just like jump right in and take something. And so it's trying to like mm-hmm. push back on that a little bit and be like, what happens if we just sit with that plant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't, yeah, I can't believe how prominent they are in Brooklyn. Yeah. It's just, I mean, you can't walk down the sidewalk without seeing one. I felt like it was like a cosmic joke when I first got here because I found them like everywhere in Michigan in my grandma's garden and mm-hmm. then came here and I was just like, wait a second. She's here too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I also think it speaks to, you know, like the medicine that we need and like culturally, Mm -hmm. you know, like if we keep seeing a plant over and over, like I feel like there's like more and more Datura every year. And especially like, I think it was honestly, it was like 2020. I feel like I just... I mean, oh, that's what I had this wild experience in 2020 where, you know, I was like growing plants on my fire escape in Brooklyn and I had a bunch of pots. I had a bunch of Datura that I'd been growing for a number of years and I would bring them in in the winter and then put them back out. And um, I had a bunch of pots just full, like half full of dirt and trash and, you know, just saving them for like the next season. And I went out onto the fire escape finally, probably like May or June 2020 when we were all just in a in an, a state an ongoing state and there were like 10 seedlings growing out of this like trash dirt that like wow. were and they were like crushed they weren't even crushed they were under pots there was like a pot in a pot and they were growing out from the side and I ended up moving a couple months later to so-called northern New Mexico and like I had to give away all of these babies. Cause I was like, I, I can take some, but I can't take like 15 <laughs> Datura babies with me. So 
it felt like, oh, right, we're in like a death cycle in all kinds of ways. And we need to be with that, you know, be with that medicine. So, yeah, I love when they're just like everywhere and you can't escape it, really. Yeah. And all next to the mugwort, too, at least in my neighborhood, which I oh my gosh, it's just not a amazing. coincidence either. <laughs> the dreaming next to the death cycle, like the, it's just mm-hmm. the intuition. Oh, yeah. Plants are way smarter than us. I'm <laughs> convinced. I'm I'm not trying to put them on like a pedestal, but I'm like, no, they're like way smarter <laughs> than me for sure. <laughs> That's just credit where credit's due. <laughs> Another thing about Deterra, which I've already talked about 200 times, um, something that I like so much about being with the plant is like we get to be with that contrast of, um, you know, like poison and medicine so easily. They bloom at night and they just bloom for one night. So they're already living down there too. And and they're like one of the most intoxicating, incredible scents I've ever, ever experienced. And they are so soft. So it's like, I feel like they're like a very inviting plant. And then it's kind of like the the other <laughs> the other side of it is the like, yeah, it's poisonous. You know, it could really harm you if you ingest it and you don't do it in right relationships. So I feel like that, I don't know, like holding that complexity just in, in the way that the plant is in the world is really cool to be, to be with. So I know, um, earlier before we, um, jumped on this interview, we were talking about Hecate and your relationship with Hecate. Mm. And I just want to know if you can share a bit more about that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I started coming into identifying as a witch or working with different practices as a witch, um, I really struggled with like goddess work because I felt like it was so cisgender and kind of like binary and just not, not my experience in the world and in, in relationships to other people and, but I, when I found her, I was kind of like, okay, this one's a freak and like a really cool <laughs> mm-hmm. guy. And, um, you know, I mean, like dogs and lamps and the crossroads and snakes. And I mean, she's poison medicine, you know, she's mm-hmm. definitely hanging out in the ether and in the underworld. So I think I just felt seen a bit, you know, like I was like, oh, this is a, this is a, a person I can hang with. And it really like working with Hecate allowed me to like start building my own practices, you know, I mean, I of course like, you know, know things that she likes and, and also like, I felt like I've just had so many experiences where it was really clear that she was present for me in my life, like finding snake skins everywhere or, you know, there was, I was up working on um, a creative nonfiction book that I've been working on forever and writing a lot about poison medicine of all kinds. And there was like a dead snake under the altar I had made for her. So like in, in a house that I was in and I was just like, it just felt like I was actually able to feel things and, and find like messages of support, which, um, I'm a really heady person. So I feel like sometimes I get, I miss out on, on the signs or the things. Cause I'm like all up here in my brain all the time. And so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I don't work as intentionally with her at this point, but she was a really big guide um, for a lot of a lot of rough years. I was doing um, that program at Goddard College, the graduate program, and you know, essentially like studying trauma and queer community and plants and grief. And it's where I was doing a lot of like personal healing work and really like doing a lot of breath work and writing through some really hard stuff and working with psychedelics and entheogens for the first time. So I was just down, down in the dirt. And I felt, I found a lot of solace in connecting with that energy. Beautiful. I can't believe the snake. I mean, I can believe it. I don't want to say I can't believe it. That's not, words are powerful, but it's very poignant. Such beautiful signs, though. Mm-hmm. Like, such beautiful signs. Yeah. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a very, I mean, and I was up there alone too. So there was like nobody to be like, do you see this snake down here? <laughs> like there is a dead snake. I've never had a dead snake in my house. <laughs> yeah. I went fishing one time and I felt something and I reeled it back and it was a perfectly intact snake skin. Oh, oh my God. And it was the only time I've ever been fishing. I was like, I think I'm done now. <laughs> Message received. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, snakes have been really, I mean, I live in, you know, the mountains of northern New Mexico now. And, you know, the first year we were here, our neighbors kept being like, have you seen all the rattlesnakes? And I was like, no, I have not. You know, like I haven't. And this year, for whatever reason, it's just been like endless rattlesnakes. We had one in the garden that was in a hole um, for a while. And, you know, we'd have to go out to the garden and like go check the hole first to make sure that they were in the hole still before we like mm-hmm. did garden things. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a, there's a lot of fear around rattlesnakes, like warranted fear, you know, they do get into houses mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they do bite and all that. But we were just like, let's just see if we can work with, I mean, there's a reason this snake has chosen this garden to like be in the prairie dog hole. You know, they're everywhere. They, they want to be in this garden. So, um, yeah, it's been a very rattlesnake heavy summer. Just cool. I like it. I mean, it's a little scary when you're hiking and there's like high grasses and you're like, shit, there's a baby rattlesnake sitting right there. But yeah. yeah. I remember a piece of folklore. It's like if you find a snake living on your property, it means that the water is safe there. Mm. Can't remember yeah. where I heard it, but I love I love that. Yeah, and I think too, it's like looking at the the whole picture, it's like, I don't, I mean, I, I don't try to kill or remove anything that's around mm-hmm. because I have no idea what that would set off in the, in the chain of, you know, being in relationship to the land and the earth. And so, but you know, yeah, it's a little, <laughs> I feel like my hypervigilance comes in really handy here. Cause I'm just like scanning and I'm like, ah, rattlesnake. <laughs> got it. Okay. Avoid that rattlesnake. <laughs> Uses for trauma. In the same way with deer. I'm like, deer, deer, deer. And Cody's like, what? (laughs) So Jennifer, you are an author, an herbalist, and a healer who works with grief and trauma. And among your many offerings, you facilitate breathwork classes. Um, Can you speak a bit about breath work, like maybe how you got into it or what you've learned from it and in what ways it can support people? Yeah. Yeah. I found breath work um, when I lived in Brooklyn still, probably in, I think it was 2014. And a few months prior, I had worked um, for the first time with the first psychedelic or entheogen I had ever worked with, which was Iboga which is a a central and West African shrub, not from my personal background or lineage, but something that I had the opportunity to work with through friends who had um, been in Gabon for a month and went through a whole initiation process and then brought it back and were offering it sliding scale to people. Because it's really, you know, it's a like psychedelics and entheogens are, they're like big business now and capitalism is alive and well in that world. Um, and so I appreciated having the opportunity to work at it in a way that I could afford and could access. So that was my first experience of really, I mean, besides like dissoci- constant dissociation and maybe trying meditation here and there of like being in this expanded consciousness. And I share about this because I found breathwork a few months after it. And I just felt like an intuitive push to do it, even though breath had always been something that was really hard for me. Um, historically and, and currently, I'm still like a breath holder and I'm a shallow breather. I'm a, I'm an upper kind of like chest breather because of trauma and abuse and complex PTSD and just like bracing and waiting and anticipating. Um, so I was really afraid to do breath work and, um, it blew my mind, you know, like it, it brought me back right into these places of where, um, I could connect back to myself, but like 
it's almost like myself just didn't even matter anymore. You know, like there was like a couple things happening. It was, I was able to kind of like come back into like a split second of like, I'm okay, which I don't think I had ever, I mean, I've shared this before and shared a lot in my breathwork groups. I don't think I'd ever experienced that. I never had, I don't think I'd ever consciously been like, I'm okay, you know, or I'm going to be okay. That like, you know, I feel like in a lot of like, trauma research or trauma work, people are always like, oh, there's that like untouched part of yourself. And I was like, I don't have one, you know, like it feels like every part of me has been compromised. So it was refreshing and enlivening to be like, I'm okay, you know? And it was like a split second. It was so tiny. I could have missed it, but it really, it helped kind of bring me deeper into the practice and trust the practice and trust my breath and trust my capacity to like be a little bit bigger, you know, connect to something a little bit bigger than myself. And so, you know, after that, because of my background, my personal background in like trauma and violence, and because I was already doing like community work around sexual violence and and trauma more broadly, you know, and being a part of like, kind of like a radical far left queer and trans world, I wanted other people to be able to like connect to that practice. And and when I was looking around at like what I call like mainstream wellness or the wellness industrial complex, like there weren't a lot of spaces for those of us that are kind of like in the margins or holding um, marginalized identities. So, you know, again, I took some time in my own practice. I think I, you know, practiced for a couple of years, just both on my own and with, um, a facilitator a few times, but, um, I knew I wanted to facilitate it at some point. I just wasn't quite ready to be like the idea of like being in front of a room or something or like being one of one with people. I was like, Oh no, Oh no, no, no. I can't, I'm not there yet. Cause I'm kind of like, you know, I'm in the underworld. I'm down there. Like no one can see me. That's where I feel most comfortable. Um, so I did finally start training, um, and there were all kinds of issues and complications with those trainings that I did initially, but luckily I, I had like a pretty strong background in like trauma work and trauma study and psychedelic work and facilitation. And so, yeah, I started facilitating it in 2017. Um, so I work one-on-one with people. I do breathwork groups, virtual. I've done all virtual now since the pandemic started. I don't uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's the time for breath work in person. I'm a little confused about why. I mean, I'm not confused. I know exactly why people are doing it, but like, I'm not. So you can find me on the internet and on my Zoom screen. Um, but it's, it's a really beautiful practice. And I think like, you know, it gets a lot of attention for being like this, like wild, massive, like overwhelming experience. And I think like for the way that I I work with people and who I'm working with, it's like, we are survivors of all kinds of shit. We don't want to overwhelm our systems. So, you know, I try to invite people into really just being with their breath outside of like what I'm saying or what I'm suggesting or recommending, because I think like that helps build safety. And I think a lot of us, um, lost that internal safety through violence and oppression. And so, yeah, I try to bring, you know, I try to bring it to spaces where people maybe like me never thought that they'd be able to be in a relationship to their breath. So I feel like it's really rewarding because I think it's personal, you know, like, yeah, I'm facilitating it, but it's not mine. Like what people experience is not mine at all. And has very little to do with me, I think, honestly. So it feels cool to just see people and hear from people reconnecting to their breath when they like really struggled to for so long. I just finished your book a few days ago, The Power of Breathwork. And I I so loved how you had really simple techniques and then you built up to more advanced ones because I do think breathwork sometimes can seem overwhelming if you get introduced to some of the more advanced practices, but even the simple ones or the, you know, the fourfold breath or something where you inhale for four breaths, hold, you know, exhale for a count of four. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful practice and the book is just gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, I wanted it to be accessible, you know, cause I, mm-hmm. I mean, it 
didn't feel accessible to me when I found it at first. And it didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone that I told about it too, like they were like, I don't want to go to that space and pay $40 to like be gendered or whatever. Um, So, you know, I think, and I think that there's a lot, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, so many of us are really disconnected from our bodies, from our breath, often out of like self-preservation, you know, like Mm -hmm. and dissociation, I think is a, a powerful tool. I don't, I don't like to like demonize dissociation at all, but I think like, Sometimes we need to come back in, you know, we need to come back to ourselves and it's really important to do that slowly because, yeah, we don't want to overwhelm ourselves. We don't, you know, breath work, the kind of more enlivening, engaged, faster, you know, more intense practices can bring up a lot of shit. And it's amazing Mm -hmm. because, you know, like sometimes we do. I mean, I feel both ways. It's like sometimes we need to be pushed into those harder moments to to see that we can handle them, you know, or that we can step away from them when we need to. And um, but, you know, like even body scans, I'm like whenever I was, you know, younger and in a space where like somebody would be like, now we're going to scan our bodies. And I was like, no, we are not going to scan our bodies today. Like, no, no, no. You know, so mm-hmm. all of that, it's like, it's a practice. And it's like listening to that part that's like, no, you know, is really important because again, it's like trusting ourselves, trusting our boundaries, trusting the wiser parts of ourselves that maybe aren't ready to like step into something intense. So yeah, access and just like spaciousness in the practice was really important to me. You also created and edited an anthology highlighting LGBTQ survivors called Queering Sexual Violence. Can you speak a little bit about this process and collection of stories and voices? Yeah. Yeah. I started working on that in 2010 maybe even, I think it was 2010. Um, and I had no experience writing or editing or putting out a call for submissions or pitching to publishers or any of it. I just knew that it needed to be in the world. Um, yeah, I had done some community organizing work in Brooklyn and it was a part of a larger department of health funded project, which at first seemed really incredible. And then I quickly realized that it was just like really kind of singularly, I mean, it felt singularly focused on a certain kind of survivor, on a certain kind of person. It felt like there was a lot of like centering of like whiteness and cisgender women and, you know, don't be too crazy if you're a survivor, which like I was, I was and am (laughs) very much in that, in that Mm -hmm. realm. And, um, and I, when I looked around, I didn't, there weren't a lot of resources for, for those of us in like LGBTQ and also like other intersecting communities. And so there were definitely some, like I, I found a couple, but there was not like one book that was focused on it. Um, And I also, you know, like I was looking for a community too, I think. And I I wanted to be in relationship to other people's writing around their own survivorhood. And also like, you know, a lot of times people who survive sexual and other forms of violence are the ones doing the nonprofit work and working in organizations and burning the fuck out, you know? And I think that there wasn't a lot of space for like, I was also, I trained also to be a rape crisis counselor in a New York City emergency room on call overnight. And, you know, I thought I had had my shit together, which was hilarious. I was like 27 or something. I was like, I got it all figured out. I'm fine. Having done like very little (laughs) healing work besides like therapy with a capital T. And, you know, I think like, I wanted to be in relationship to people who were navigating their survivorhood and navigating being in the world and working with other people. So, um, yeah, I just started working on it and I put together a call for submissions. I put it out. It got a lot of, um, traction in different like feminist websites and, you know, like politicized communities and websites. And, and also like that was part of it too, was like linking, Like, it's never felt enough for me to be focused on just my individual healing. Like, if I heal to to the end, you know, like, I heal everything, and it's all healed, and it's all done. It's like, I still live in this broken fucking world that's like, you know, the the abuse continues. It's not, it doesn't end for a lot of us. Um, And so I wanted to be 
building a, a resource that linked like personal and collective violence and personal and collective healing, because I think like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of it that just gets um, erased in kind of more mainstream narratives. So yeah, I was, you know, and I also wanted to like decenter like the white cisgender straight woman, not that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, white person. I don't identify as a woman, but there's tons of resources for, you know, a more mainstream, um, that's not the word, (laughs) like a more, um, cisgender, straight, white experience. There's a lot more resources, both like structurally in organizations and nonprofits and also just the available resources. So, trying to decenter that a bit and like call in to um, the ways that people, like so many people from marginalized communities have been surviving impossible things forever and ever and ever and are the ones doing the, the kind of like backbreaking work of supporting other people through it. And then that came out, um, Believe it or not, a lot of people aren't very interested in publishing a book about <laughs> LGBTQ people and sexual violence. So it took a while. Um, and this was before, you know, Me Too and all of that, um, which, you know, the the larger movement around it, I, I'm certainly like Toronto Burke's incredible, but like the larger movement around Me Too has, again, I feel like erased a lot of people from marginalized communities, even though it was started by a Black queer person. Um, so it took a while to find a publisher and then, you know, tons of rejections. Um, and there's about 35 people in it. So it was also like six years of kind of like holding, holding us all and holding the vision. And one of the contributors is my dear friend, Aisha Shahida Simmons, who is like unparalleled in all kinds of realms. She's an incredible meditation teacher, a filmmaker. She's specifically focused on um, sexual violence in Black communities and also like, you know, LGBTQ folks. And um, I just remember like being like, well, another rejection. And she was like, it's gonna happen. It's gonna be in the world. It has to be. So I think it was, it was great to be working with people because I didn't have to hold it alone. And again, I'm like, I'm like back of the room, underworld, in the dark person. Like I did not want to be, I, again, I had not considered that like, if it did come out in the world that I would have to do like book events and like Mm. talk publicly Mm -hmm. and like speak at colleges and all of that stuff is like not my, where I'm most comfortable, but holding it with other people helped me just be like, nah, it's just not about me. It's like much bigger. And I'm like a tiny little part of it. I'm just the person sending all the emails, you know? So it came out in 2016 and it's still out. It's, I mean, it's like books do. It's like once it was out in the world, it was fully no longer mine, but it's been, I've been grateful to see it be shared pretty widely and it's been supporting survivors. And also I hear a lot from organizations like anti-violence organizations buying like 90 copies to distribute to like every single like chapter organization, which I was surprised by because it's pretty critical of like the mainstream um, sexual violence world. And, and so I'm grateful that it felt like there was enough room in it for people to actually like bring it into their organizations and hopefully like change from the inside out. Cause we need that too. I just couldn't handle being in that world personally. I would love to speak a little bit more about healing and its political nature. Um, I know that you and I spoke back in 2019 for an online publication, and I had asked you about how people could get involved with providing care in an accessible manner. And you wrote, quote, healing is always political, no matter how many people try to spiritually bypass the violence of the world in search of some kind of depoliticized enlightenment. Enlightenment is a daily practice and is deeply connected to being with the pain of the world, of outrage and protest, not just basking in the beauty, and, end quote. And I could just not agree more with this. Um, so could you speak a little bit more about, about this point? 
Yeah. I can't believe it was 2019 one. I know. Feels like 200 years ago and also like last week, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I, when we did that interview, I was kind of newly, you know, I had been working for an herbalist as an herbalist for, I don't know, four ish something years, five years. And I had recently started doing breath work as well a couple of years prior. And I think a lot of that was coming out of just like the frustration of being, and again, like kind of the wellness industrial complex that again is like very white and cisgender and is really disconnected from not even just disconnected, like woefully intentionally excluding a politicized view on um, trauma and healing. And, you know, I think we've only seen it I would argue, I don't know if it's gotten worse. We don't have to put it into a binary of worse or better, but like in the last couple of years of like QAnon and just like the deep dive of so many people in, in the wellness world down into conspiracy and like a doubling down on um, the spiritual bypassing, you know? It's like, I'm like, how are you going to spiritual bypass a pandemic? But I guess we found a way, you know? So... Mm-hmm. I think I had a lot of frustration being a person from like a a radical left view of the world and being involved in like um, protest and organizing work to see, of course, it's happening in the healing world, but like how depressing and how alienating for so many people. Um, and you know, it's that binary again. It's like, if we're all trying to get to the top of the mountain, it's like, well, we're going to start at the ground at some point and we're going to be back on the ground at some point, you know, like it's not just, it's an endless destination, (laughs) you know, like enlightenment Mm -hmm. or like, you know, it's endless. It's not, I don't, I don't think I'll, I guess the journey is trying to find it, but it's also like trying for me, it's like being again in the like in the poison you know it's like you can't I just I just don't think that healing can happen in a vacuum I don't think it can happen only in an individual I mean it can happen in an individual but it doesn't mean that it's going to be sustainable once we're in relationships with others we're in the world we're in our job we're experiencing like cultural and structural violence all the time so Um, yeah, I think, I think it's complicated and I think we need to be able to hold it all in those spaces in order for those spaces to actually be healing and for healing to actually be happening. Yeah, definitely. And when I had asked you in that same interview, some Mm -hmm. suggestions for getting involved for folks who are looking, um, to be a part of healing in this way, you wrote that quote, Some ways to get involved are to first just allow people their humanity. So often we find ways to dehumanize people and their experiences or gatekeep who can or should access healing. And another way is to get familiar with the legacies of people who have done this work, who are still doing this work and lifting them up and throwing financial support behind their work. And another way is to allow people to be the experts of their own experiences. While I certainly draw from my areas areas of study, I also think it's so necessary that I create a space where people are their own experts and affirm that they're also bringing a lifetime of knowledge about their own bodies and experiences, end quote. And these are just such amazing guideposts for those who are interested in healing work. And I'm just wondering, do you have anything that you would like to add or or share with that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that, again, was like coming out of feeling so alienated in in spaces that I was told were for healing Um, or, you know, being in trainings and being told like if someone, you know, brought up cultural appropriation or something, being having the room be told like, oh, this is actually not the space for that. Like we're actually doing healing work here, you know, and it's like, I mean... I still, it still stuns me into silence sometimes to, to be in spaces like that where, um, you know, we are, we are human beings in a, in a world with other human beings and we have had violence and oppression and trauma since the dawn of time. Like it's not separate. Um, and I think like 
you know, so many people, I've heard from so many people over the years that are like black and brown and LGBTQ and disabled and just like really feeling alienation in these spaces um, because these spaces, you know, aren't for us to some degree. They are, and more and more, it's like the wellness industrial complex is about money. And I think like, it just feels so out of line with the work for me and the, and the work of being human and the work of being with other people's humanness and humanity. And so I think like, yeah, I think it's really important to let people like the violence that people experience or the trauma that people are trying to heal from. Sure. It's just per, not just not sure it's personal sometimes, but it's also structural. You know, it's like, you can't tell somebody that racism doesn't belong in a healing space when like racism has deeply impacted a person's body and experience or homophobia or transphobia, ableism. So yeah, I think it's like, we got to let people be, their humanness, their hu- their identities are, are are in the room with us all the time. And as a practitioner, it's like my identities are in the room all the time. You know, like I can't be expecting people to just feel safe because I said the space is safe. You know, it's like the way that the space gets safer is um, me being upfront about my privileges and upfront about where I don't have privilege and and letting like those conversations be in the space. And I think too, you know, like, I mean, it's, again, it's gotten more complex over the last few years, especially, but I I feel like there's, we so quickly forget our own histories, you know, or we erase, I mean, both in the like large way of like, um, you know, trying to like remove tech things from textbooks and stuff. But like, I also just mean like, nothing is new, you know, like every practice comes from a tradition or a culture. I didn't like, I don't get to just trademark something because I like hold the out breath one second longer. And now it's like a new breath practice. It's not, it's the same shit. Um, so there's so much reinventing the wheel that happens where I'm like, if we just offered our respect and deep regard and financial support and platform to people have been doing this work forever who have been making these connections and links forever like we'd be better off because I mean I feel like it too with like even just on like Instagram like how many trauma experts there are now and I'm like where does your training (laughs) like where did like you know like I just I get really scared because I think like everybody and again it's like it's the impact of capitalism you know it's like it's the impact of like a crumbling world and like work and wanting to do work that feels like um engaged with the world but I I worry about the reinventing all the time where everyone's just the newest the newest greatest expert and we're still not connecting the dots between the ways that violence shows up and contributes to the trauma that we're all holding in different ways yeah but yeah I just in general I'm like putting support behind people who have been doing this work forever, who have had very little financial support. You know, I mean, I definitely see it again in the trauma world where it's like, there's like the same three cis white men who get held up all the time as like the trauma experts. And I'm like, you're missing so much. You don't have the lived experience. You don't have the identities. You don't have any of that. So like, how do we bring more people into the fold? We decenter. We decenter the like the pedestal. We decenter social capital that gets people up on the top of the pedestal. And I, yeah, I just think there's room for more people. You know, we just have to share share the stage a little bit. So Jennifer, I think we are running out of time. But do you have any upcoming projects that you're excited about that you want to share with our listeners today? Yeah, I have um, grief. Grief related is one. I have a. Um, I off. I often offer um, breathwork for grief, but I haven't done it in I don't know at least a year or two. No, nah, probably a year. So I'm doing a breathwork for grief group. It'll be virtual. Um, sliding scale. There's a reduced rate also for folks that are BIPOC. Um, that's October 27th through. Um, likely general. It's a shop in Toronto, uh, lots of beautiful witchy and 
you know, politically engaged makers and it's a really beautiful space. So that'll be, um, yeah, October 27th. And you can go to Likely General's website, just Google it or go to my website. My website is corpusritual.com. Um, I also, I'm pretty sure that the breathwork book is being re-released as a paperback. So that's happening in November, I think. Um, and then I have some like poison plant projects that keep getting pushed to the, (laughs) the back burner, but I'm hoping 2023 will be the year where I'm able to get some projects up and out plant wise. So yeah, my newsletter is a good place. And that link is just up on my website to sign up for that. But I do, I offer breathwork groups each month and I always have my, um, herb shop open and available too. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer, and listeners on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com, previously known as magicandalchemy.com. Tune in to next week's episode where we discuss protection spells and hexes. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time. <laughs>